Welcome to Black Earth Podcast. Black Earth is an interview podcast that's celebrating nature and the inspiring black women in the environmental movement. In today's episode, I am joined by Leah Penniman. Leah is a farmer, an educator, an author, food justice activist, and the co-founding director of Soul Fire Farm in New York. In today's episode, we speak about what it means to cultivate a healthy and just relationship with land through farming. Farming and our food system is one of the most impactful ways that we can help to restore our relationship with nature and address climate change. And in this episode, we also make time to celebrate and remember the contributions of black farmers and black growers in America and beyond. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Leah Penniman. I use all pronouns. And I am one of the founding co-directors and also the farm manager at Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York, up in the mountains. Amazing. Thank you so much, Leah. Um, so Leah, how would you describe your relationship with nature? I love that we are in a space where we can talk openly and freely about our relationship to nature. Uh, as a farmer, as an environmental justice organizer, as an earth listener, my relationship to nature is almost beyond words in its profundity and impact. I would say that uh, a foundational experience for me uh, was growing up in a very small rural town in central Massachusetts in the U.S., where our family was was the only non-white family in the town. And to say that we were racially taunted would be an understatement. It was, you know, the bullying and the terrorization was was constant in school. And so my two siblings and I found a lot of solace in nature, in the tall pine trees and the rainbow trout, in the lake, in the mountain, uh, the blueberries and the wild sorrel. And this ecosystem became an extended family, uh, not metaphorically, but quite actually. And we became defenders of the earth. You know, when loggers came through or other assaults on the environment, we put our bodies on the line from a really young age to try to protect our family. And these experiences fomented in me this, this deep sense of um, our beyond human kin as people, uh, not as environment or other or resources, but really as as family members. And so, uh, you know, continue to have a number of of ecological experiences growing up. But one of the most salient was actually getting a summer job at an organic farm uh, as a teenager and falling in love with that intersection of of people care and earth care that is farming and the elegant simplicity of of, you know, planting a seed and tending it and pulling joy and nourishment from the earth and then being able to share that with community. And so those twin experiences are, you know, what laid the foundation for me to become a farmer, to become an author who writes about farming and, and environment, and also to teach um, environmental science and environmental issues to the rising generation. Wow. Thank you so much. I've been thinking a lot recently about 
landscapes and how, for me, growing up, land felt like an objective or separate um, space that's separate from me. And one of the experiences I had, which really reshaped that for me, was reading a book called Trace by Dr. Lorette Savoy, um, whom I know um, is part of your upcoming book, which we'll talk about later. Um, But reading Trace was really profound for me and she helped me to remember nature um, and especially land. Um, And now I see land and landscapes as livingscapes because they hold so much stories and they tell us a lot about who we are, um, who we've been and who we're becoming. And because I know from from who you are and the way that you work and what you do, land is so intimately uh, tied to to who you are and you're so intimately connected to to land as well. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about um, some of the lands or landscapes that have shaped uh, you and your passion for social justice, um, for farming and for food? Oh, such a beautiful question. And yes, big ups to Dr. Lorette Savoy, contributor to Black Earth Wisdom, who helped me understand in a whole other way um, the myriad ways that the earth speaks to us through ice cores, through uplift and erosion, through geological formation, through tree rings, that all of these are languages that we need to restore our literacy in in order to hear the earth. So I know we'll get to that later, but you just warmed my heart mentioning Trace. I was like, I need to go reread that. But as far as this this really important question about connection to land, I want to zoom out a little bit and put it in a historical context, because to me, it's personal, but it's also political. And there's a particular historical quote that brought me to tears when I first hear it and still gives me goosebumps. And this came out of 1865 was the end of the Civil War and chattel slavery and the 13th Amendment in the United States. And there were groups of newly freedmen who got together to plan and advocate for what Reconstruction could look like. And in Falls Church, Virginia, one particular group, an excerpt from their letter to the Union Army said, what we need are homes and the ground beneath them so that we can plant fruit trees and say to our children, these are yours. And this yearning for stable home, for stable land, to be able to plant a tree and tell your descendants that they can eat the fruit has been an enduring yearning, uh, a guiding light for Black Americans uh, throughout, you know, the since 1619. And there's a lot of history to share about that, but the, you know, the deeper I dig into it and understand how the 16 million acres of land that Black people once held has been eroded away due to government discrimination, to lynchings, to um, unscrupulous developers trying to exploit the fact that people don't have wills, you know, this, this bleeding out of land in the community is not just about a loss of intergenerational wealth. It's not just about a loss of the ability to grow food or even to put down a home, but there is a cultural continuity that comes when we can plant the tree and tell our children, this is yours. When we can have our family reunion, we can bury our dead and come back and honor them in that space. 
And I recently learned, this is just emerging research, but Black people who have land have longer life expectancies than Black people who don't have land. And, and so I place my personal experience in that context because that yearning for land is, has been inside of me as well. And because I didn't inherit land, uh, because land is expensive, you know, we ended up wedding ourselves to a beautiful 80 acres, but it's mountain land. There's almost no topsoil. It's rocks. It's clay. Uh, the federal government agency for agriculture, when they came to visit, they said, you can't grow food here. You're not eligible for loans or grants because the soil is so poor. And we did what our people do, you know, make cobbler out of rotten peaches and quilts out of scraps where we have restored the organic matter, the soil depth, the biodiversity of this land. And we grow beautiful food here. Uh, and we feel a deep belonging here. But it is still of note, right, that in the United States, 98% of the land is white owned and almost all the good land, right? Good land, so to speak, the deep topsoil that you don't have to remediate is, is white owned. And so there's a, a personal and political in that land relationship. Wow. Thank you. Um, and you've you've just touched now on, on that journey of you um, cultivating that mountain land into into land for growing, growing food. Could you tell us more about the turning point for you um, where you started to, or you continued to deepen your work? Because from what I understand, you've been, you've been actively farming since 1996, but there was a, a turning point where it became uh, your full vocation and devoted more and more time. So what was that turning point? Could you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Uh, so many turning points, right? So <laughs> I think that, you know, what, what brought us most directly to this mountainside land was living in the south end of Albany, which is a neighborhood under food apartheid. And our, we struggled to feed our children fresh ancestral whole foods. And our neighbors were also struggling. So is there a reason why? So food apartheid refers to a census tract or area code, a zip code where there are not grocery stores and there's high poverty. We also did not have public transportation to get to the grocery store. So you could get McDonald's, you know, you could get uh, liquor, you'd get cigarettes, but you couldn't get apples and kale and things like that in the neighborhood. You had to have a car and you had to be able to drive to a wealthier neighborhood. And there are millions of Americans who live under food apartheid where it's just almost impossible to get food. So, you know, even having college degrees and being highly motivated to get that broccoli, it just wasn't available. We ended up joining a farm share and walking over two miles to the pickup spot um, because we didn't have a car at the time to go pick up that food. You know, one baby in the stroller, one baby in the backpack, put the vegetables on the child, go back down the hill. So our neighbors were sort of half jokingly saying, you know, when are you going to start a farm for the people? And that was one major turning point for us in terms of deciding to look for land, deciding to finally implement this, what had previously been an almost whimsical dream of, of having a farm. And we did start out as a family farm. Our, our very first program was to deliver food at low and no cost to our neighbors in the south end of Albany. Of course, over time, we've 
grown and changed into a community farm that that continues with the Solidarity Share food delivery program, but also primarily focuses on education for uh, rising generation Black farmers. And the you mentioned specifically a turning point around full-time vocation. And a lot of that was economic. Uh, I've been teaching full-time in the public schools as an environmental science and biology teacher for 17 years until 2019. And using the income from that sort of, you know, stable city job to fund the farm operation. And so it took some time to be able to, you know, have the farm be financially solvent. We started a co-op and a nonprofit organization um, as part of leveraging some of those resources in order to be able to, you know, pay our staff and and make sure that the people could make this their full-time vocation. And that, you know, that's only just a few years ago now, right before the pandemic. And it's not a movement that I started or that Soul Fire Farm started. We are standing on legacy. We're standing on the shoulders of our, our ancestors and our elders. Um, living organizations like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is the oldest Black cooperative organization in the United States, have been you know, doing the work. Um, the Black Belt Justice Center, the National uh, Black Farmers Association, and on and on. And so I really want to take a moment to thank these uh, community members for their sacrifice and for their example. And we certainly added our kindling to the flame, you know, um, as the returning and rising generation of farmers who are, many of us, uh, children of the Great Migration when 6 million Black people had to flee uh, the rural South looking for uh, what they hoped would be an escape from white supremacy, of course, you know, it took different forms in the North. So all that to say, you know, this movement, which I do agree has um, overlapping and intersecting, but also distinct areas. When we talk about food sovereignty or land sovereignty, the root of that uh, movement comes out of indigenous community. And um, I'll name Via Campesina in particular, which is an international peasant movement of earth workers, uh, femme-centered, indigenous-centered, that that came up with this term of food sovereignty, which goes beyond just having enough to eat and really talks about how do we democratize every aspect of the food system from soil to seed to processing to eating, how do we all have a say? And when we talk about you know ending racism in the food system or racial justice in the food system, we're talking about a predominantly you know black-led movement. And um, I think of what some of our elders did, you know, had the audacity, the beautiful audacity to like sue the federal government for discrimination to win uh, a major settlement in the Pigford v. Glickman case um, that in some ways was symbolic because so much damage had already been done, but also so important to show the world that Black farmers didn't decline from 14% of the nation's farms to 1% because of choice. It was really a forced expulsion. And then when we talk about, you know, the sort of third sphere that, that we identify very strongly with of, of farm worker rights, um, we speak about like the Latino or Latina community who comprises over 80% of the farm workforce currently in the United States, mostly through guest worker programs like H-2A and other uh, work visas that leave workers very vulnerable to exploitation. Um, and, and, and in fact, in the United States, there's a whole other set of labor laws that apply to farm workers 
that are less stringent than the ones that apply to every other worker. And this has a, a deeply and explicitly racist history. And so in my mind, I think it's incredibly important that we look at, and actually I'll name a fourth, obviously the environmental movement, <laughs> the, the deep ecology movement. And so I don't think that we move forward in creating a just and healthy relationship without land, without addressing sovereignty, white supremacy, worker exploitation, and, and earth reverence. Like all of these things uh, need to move forward in conjunction. And all of them are about restoring a circle of kinship where we see one another and the earth as family rather than as resources to be exploited. Wow, thank you. Um, and so can you share more about how that has manifested in the work of Soul Fire Farm? Absolutely. So, you know, we work in these sort of three different spheres at Soul Fire Farm in the, and I love that. So in the, in the day-to-day, in a very tangible way, we run a real farm. It's not like a fake Twitter pixel farm. It's like 80 acres of land that needs to be cared for. And so um, growing food using our Afro-Indigenous ancestral techniques that sequester carbon and increase biodiversity, packing that food and bringing it to community, uh, making plates you know, that go out and, and feed the participants who come to our program. So on a very base level, like we're caring for the lands um, and feeding the community. And then uh, the second major area of work that we have is around equipping and, and inspiring the rising generation of black and brown farmers. And this is so important because time and again, we hear that there are not culturally relevant or affordable spaces to learn how to farm uh, or people told that they they're not welcome. And so to have a space where you can come stay on the farm learn all of these techniques from seed to harvest, learn about the history of black and brown lands work and the noble dig dignified agrarian contributions of our people is really important. So we have youth programs, adult, we have a uh, 18 month fellowship that provides a stipend to help people get started with their first year on the farm. We have online classes. So there have a whole wraparound support for learning how to farm and learning how to, to care for the land. And then to get to the movement piece, you know, there's a sort of catch-all of rabble rousing where we try to be part of creating a new narrative around uh, Black folks' leadership in, in earth and land spaces. And that looks like writing books and articles and doing public speaking, advocating for policy. Uh, we had the honor of being part of a group that drafted uh, the Justice for Black Farmers Act, which is just reintroduced into Congress, which provides... Uh, land access and training for black farmers, should it pass, um, working on the Breathe Act, which came out of the movement for black lives uh, and, and working in coalition, you know, it's, we're just one farm. And so there's national coalitions that we're part of that have more influence that are able to try to change policy and build new institutions like land trusts and credit unions and um, training institutes. And so we see ourselves as very much part of you know, if you think about social justice, the four wings of the butterfly of social justice, there's the builders of alternative institutions, the reformers of existing institutions, um, the, the dismantlers of whack institutions, and then the healers that help us all get through it all. We're very much in that building wing where we're constantly trying to um, create examples of the world we want to see and create structures that we hope provide at least elements that could be, you know, modeled or extrapolated. It's amazing. Um, I really like the the four elements also of 
the the social justice butterfly that you've mentioned. I can send you a graphic design of it um, because we use it a lot in our trainings. And my wonderful daughter, Nishima, created a graphic design of this butterfly of transformative social justice that I think is very helpful. Because sometimes we get in these, you know, I would say senseless debates about what's the most important thing to do to make social change. And in fact, that butterfly can't fly without all of its wings. And so we just lean into our strengths and we trust that others lean into their strengths and then we can fly together. I really agree with you. Um, And I think it helps us focus our energies and how we can support each other in the different aspects of the wings, you know, and and helping to, to see the wholeness of the change movement as opposed to like, this is the right way, this is the next step. So when I was coming up in farming as a teenager, I bought into the myth that organic and regenerative farming was either ahistorical or European, because every conference that I went to, every book that I read, uh, with very few exceptions, centered the voices and expertise of white men. And it wasn't until much later in my career doing research and traveling in Ghana and Haiti, Haiti um, and other places across the diaspora of West Africa uh, that I came to understand that so many of these techniques that have been attributed, uh, you know, to European thought have indigenous and Afro-indigenous roots. And in writing Farming While Black, the hypothesis I started with was that every technique we use, if I scratch the surface, I can find black or, and or brown people who created that. So let me like dig through the literature, which was a lot of fun. It turned out to be true. I could not find one exception um, to that, that hypothesis. So take, for example, composting, especially composting where you're integrating char and ash Uh, We can thank the women farmers of Ghana and Liberia for that, for creating African dark earths, which are just a super, super carbon sequestering pyrogenic compost that they believed so fervently in creating that you can take soil cores and tell the age of a town by the depth of this compost because everyone was adding to it, right, consistently. When we think about um, polycultures, perennial polycultures, which are so celebrated as a way to sequester carbon, increase biodiversity, stop soil erosion, on and on and on. You know, there are dozens of examples of these polycultures in Nigeria alone. Um, in Haiti, where my maternal lineage descends from, they call these polycultures Jaden Laku, which just means house garden because it's it's that common, right? It doesn't even need a special name. Uh, but you have the trees growing with the shrubs around them and then the low growing herbaceous crops and the chickens and the goats running through right? Um, Raised beds. uh, We can thank the Ovambo people for teaching us this particular rectangular method of creating raised beds, you know, and on and on. And then you jump to, you know, the diaspora, jump to the United States or or the colonies even, and the rice growing that generated massive amounts of wealth uh, for those Southern planters was the the work of Mende and Wallaf rice growers who had developed those technologies in West Africa. Uh, Dr. George Washington Carver of Tuskegee University in Alabama in the late 1800s was advocating for organic regenerative agriculture two generations before it was, quote, officially invented, right? And so was getting people to cover crop, 
uh, go muck out the swamps and integrate organic matter into their soils, rotate their crops through, make sure that nitrogen is getting fixed in the soil. Um, whether you talk about co-ops or credit unions or farm to table, you know, like on and on and on, you can trace these to uh, black and brown communities. And I think this is so important. One, just to set the record straight, but two, so many people, including myself, have been discouraged from farming because we have felt like we'd be borrowing somebody else's story, uh, that we'd be perpetually an outsider. And so to tell the rising generation, you're just you're just building on a legacy that belongs to you, that you belong here as part of this lineage, um, allows for a much deeper uh, sense of agency and pertinence that that really propels people forward in the farming space. So I wanted to talk to you about bell hooks because I love bell hooks and I've been really trying to find a way to bring her up in this podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> this is my shot. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, bell hooks has really influenced me as, as a person, uh, both my healing as a, as a black woman in um, unlearning and relearning ways of being that are dignifying for me uh, as a black woman, but also helps to bring more love into the world, to be honest. Um, and I remember reading an essay that she wrote called Touching the Earth, which is in her book, Sisters of the Yam. And the essay essentially talks about how black people have always had a relationship with nature that's centered on love and pleasure and community and joy. And sometimes there can be a tendency to almost think that caring for earth takes away from some of our deeper struggles in, in terms of racism and, and challenging anti-blackness, but actually she sees them as connected and as one part of a greater whole, which is nurturing love for ourselves and our community. Um, but that essay helped me to uh, start thinking about Black people's relationship with nature from a place of love um, and not necessarily trauma. And it's something that I've spoken with my teammate, um, Anesu, a lot in terms of communicating in this podcast. Like, we want to talk about uh, our contributions to nature, the Black people's contributions to nature, and center it in the love that we have for Earth. But then, obviously, we also have to talk about the traumas that we've experienced and the manifestations of anti-Blackness that have come through uh, environmental injustice and, and damaging earth. But I, I, I personally and deeply feel that centering our narrative around the love we have for earth is, is really important because it helps us remember the greater whole, you know, we weren't just born to, to suffer and die. Like we were born to live joyously. Um, 
And yeah, so my question to you is how, how does love show up in, in your work um, and your relationship with, with nature? So I love bell hooks too. And we actually start one of our workshops with a bell hooks quote about love. Bell Hooks wrote, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. So I'm with you. I'm with you on that. And love is the guiding force of all things. You know, when, when, when folks enter into that false, false dichotomy between caring for Black people and the earth, it's because we've forgotten that we are the earth. We are the color of soil. We are the soil-hued people of earth. There is no separation. So hatred of earth is hatred of self. Love of earth is love of self. Um, you know, when I was living in Ghana, West Africa, the queen mothers, who are just like the dope... <laughs> environmental protectors, caretaker of orphans, mediators, ceremony keepers, history keepers. You know, they said, Leah, is it true that in the U.S. a person will put a seed in the ground and they won't pray or dance or sing or pour a libation or say thank you to the earth and then they expect the seed to grow? And when I said that's by and large true, you know, they said, well, that's clearly why you are all sick because you see the earth as a thing and not as a family member, right? And what do we do? Hopefully we love our family. If we, if we restore the concentric ecology as Enrique Solomon and other indigenous thinkers would say, it is then impossible to destroy and exploit in the ways that uh, Western capitalism would, would have us do. And you know, to bring that to a very, very personal sense, I'll go back to my my childhood of, of this forest refuge from racialized violence. And I remember getting this, um, we used to go to yard sales when I was a kid. So you could pay like a nickel or a dime, you get some book or something. And so I got this, this botany book. It was a college textbook, fat, faded, dusty. Of course I was young. I couldn't really understand anything in that book, but I pretended, you know, I had my little lab with all my specimens and my, my botany book. But I, I read in that book about this incredible phenomenon called photosynthesis. And it blew my little mind. I was like, wait, the plants take in sunlight and carbon dioxide and water and they make oxygen and sugar. They make oxygen for us to breathe. That terraformed the whole planet. And so I got this idea <laughs> that I could go up to a tree and hold it, and then I would exhale my CO2, and then it would give me oxygen, <laughs> and we would just breathe together. Me and this tree would just breathe together. And, you know, granted, the diffusion chemistry doesn't quite work exactly like that, but in my heart, that's exactly what would happen. So I would go breathe with my tree friends and give them some air, and they would give me some air, and we just had this thing going on. And it was so intimate and so personal, and it's something I tried to come back to that love isn't theoretical love is absolutely um tangible and everyday and it does mean touch and proximity relationship care right and and you know it's why it's super cool to be a farmer you get to touch what you love absolutely 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 oh 
That's delightful. And I hope you had so much joy when you were hugging that tree. (laughs) We need more of that in this world for sure. We're speaking about food um, at a time when for a lot of people, food is really expensive. Um, For all the reasons that you've mentioned, the food system is really broken. And it's it's how how can we how can we bring in conversations about food sovereignty and farming at a time when uh, I feel that a lot of people are living with multiple pressures. So like the cost of living, uh, institutional racism, state violence, you know, things that really physically shape, you know, their relationship with space and everybody around them. Um, and so how have you found ways to to bring in conversations about food sovereignty and farming that takes to takes into account the the pressures that some people feel when they come to your farm or when they come to talk to you about this work. Yeah, I hear that. You know, anytime our basic needs as human beings are not met, it's almost physiologically impossible to focus on some of those higher or more transcendent needs. So if we don't have food, shelter, clothing, safety, belonging, and someone try to tell you to go out and vote or to sign some petitions or to be on a board of directors or volunteer, you know, it's just you're in survival mode. It's not feasible. And we have to remember that there is no moral judgment on that. Uh, folks need to take care of themselves and we need to be in solidarity with folks to take care of themselves and to, to survive the madness. Right. But that doesn't mean that we're excused from systems change. And those of us who have enough of our basic needs met, um, I believe have a moral obligation to work on systems change and to alleviate conditions so that nobody is having to be in some hard scrabble place where they can't engage civically and they can't participate in um, at least an ostensible democracy. Right. And I think that one thing I will say, though, is that, you know, folks come to Soul Fire Farm from all walks of life, you know, uh, races, economic backgrounds, religion, age. And being in relationship with land can, yes, there's a long-term effect, right, on food sovereignty, but there also can be an immediate alleviating effect on some of the difficulties, Um, both in terms of, you know, I talked about our Solidarity Share Program, which provides food that's to address a very tangible, immediate need. And we're inspired by the Black Panther Party, who simultaneously held a political platform and worked on survival programs because they had exactly that analysis. It's not possible to make this political change if we're like, we're hungry and we don't have any medical care, you know? And so those things were simultaneous. But there also is a psycho-spiritual healing component that comes with being on the land. And this is really not to be understated because, you know, being a survivor of racial capitalism uh, enacts a huge amount of stress and a huge toll on the psyche that makes it very difficult to navigate life. And so to be in a liberated space, to be able to get hands on the earth, to hear the bird song, uh, you know, to like 
tocar, to like play the drums with other people, you know, all of these um, healing activities can open up thought out possibility uh, for people. And, and we've heard anecdotally time and again of folks being like, you know, after my week on the farm, I was able to, um, alcohol lessened its grip on me, or I was able to step away from a toxic relationship or a dead end job and, and expand my, my choices. And so I think that, you know, there is the immediate as well as the long term, and we need to pay attention to both. So for folks who want to engage in food sovereignty in their communities, I think it's very important uh, to follow the lead of those most impacted by food injustice. So uh, Latino farm workers, farm workers in general, um, Black farmers, Indigenous earth keepers, uh, the people who have been most impacted are the ones who are experts in the solution. And so we don't need any saviors. You know, we need folks to get involved, pitch in and help with the existing movements that are happening. And if you go to Soul Fire Farms website, soulfirefarm.org, there is a directory of organizations that you could get involved with. So I would definitely say check that out. At a personal level, um, especially, you know, to folks who have been impacted by food apartheid or food injustice, reclaiming our personal food sovereignty is about taking back control. So sometimes that's as simple as, um, making a commitment that once a week, we're going to cook a whole foods meal from scratch with our family, right? And using affordable ingredients. It can be about starting to grow sprouts or microgreens in your house so that you have access to fresh food. It can be about joining the community garden or starting to learn about uh, your grandmother and great-grandmother, great-grandfather's recipes and bringing that historical knowledge back in. It can be about saving the family land that people have been fighting over trying to sell, right? But it's about reclaiming um, control and agency over our food uh, and all the steps in the food system. Thank you, Leah. Um, and thinking about next steps, I want to speak about your upcoming book. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Um, please, can you tell us about your book? Um, firstly, tell us the title so we can all just <laughs> be excited. And then <laughs> tell us about the book and how we can support. Thank you. So the title is actually, there's a beautiful synergy and serendipity between at least three Black femmes um, who have some common nomenclature for overlapping themes. So drum roll. The, the title of this book is Black Earth Wisdom, Soulful Conversations with Black Environmentalists. It is coming out. I don't know when the show is going to hit, so maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, anyway, <laughs> Black Earth Wisdom, HarperCollins. Um, you can get it everywhere. Fine books are sold. But I will tell you that this book, I almost ruined my computer with how much I was crying on my keyboard because I had a, this book came from a dream where the animals of my childhood had come in uh, to my room and were both outraged and devastated that I had forgotten how to speak their language. 
And they said, it is so important for us to rehydrate and remember how to hear the language of the animals. And so I called one of my elders, um, Mama Claudia Ford, and I said, well, you're clearly someone who knows some of the languages of the earth. Tell me about that. What is the earth saying? And tell me who else can still hear, hear the earth. And every person I talked to told me two or three other people. I had to stop at 40 interviews. Um, but so I made a directory with hundreds more people that I didn't have time to interview. But it was so profound to hear from Black folks who can read the bird song, can read the North Star, can read the silence between the notes um, of the creaking trees and the tree rings and the geological formations and who, who have messages for humankind survival based on what the earth is saying. And, you know, being able to restore our relationship with earth as kin with Earth as a text to read and also with Earth as a role model to emulate is so essential to chart our way forward. Um, so the book is a, a compilation of essays and interviews and poetry on this theme of, of Black Earth wisdom and Black um, Earth listening. And I'm just, I'm so excited to share it with the world. That sounds incredible, Leah. Um, congratulations. It really uh, firstly, thank you for listening to your dreams and uh, the beings that spoke to you in your dream. And yeah, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to read it and to share it. And um, I hope it transforms every single person who was involved in creating it, but also uh, was involved in reading, uh, reading and and receiving and sharing it with with themselves and their community. Um, so thank you so much. Um, before we close out, Leah, tell us how we can follow you, support you online, offline, and every line that exists in this planet. <laughs> so our uh, website is soulfirefarm.org. All of our socials are soulfirefarm, all one word. Um, so you can follow us there. You can uh, click on the volunteer link to come through and volunteer on the farm. We have uh, community work days every other week. We have tours every month. Uh, also on soulfirefarm.org, you can find our reparations map where you can donate to black and brown led land projects, which we always encourage. And you can order Black Earth Wisdom. The newest book is out for pre-order um, slash order. And uh, the existing book, Farming While Black, is also there too, which is a if you're interested in farming, it's a really nice, concise manual to help you get started. So hopefully we'll see you, you know, in the ether or on the land or on the socials. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. We're on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn at Black Earth Podcast. And you can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you in the next episode. <laughs>